Hello, and welcome to the third podcast of InfoSection. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize security, optimize performance. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. Also brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, the security stories of the week. Joining us via Google Hangout is Nick. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. And we have Vic here in studio. What's going on, guys? And we have myself. So um, we're going to start this off this week um, with the Apple iCloud. So Nick has some information on us or for us uh, on that particular um, on that particular information security news of the week um, piece. So go ahead and take it away, Nick. So Matt, do you remember last week when we talked about Apple moving to the two-factor authentication for its iCloud? I do. Well, this week it has been executed. Awesome. So what are the details? So Wednesday night, Apple sent out an email to all Apple ID accounts detailing the change. And it also mentions that beginning October 1st, app-specific passwords will be necessary for third-party apps that don't support two-factor, like Outlook or Thunderbird, in order to access iCloud. If you have an account, it should be in your inbox, so check it. You probably did already. Um, so you that we record this on Thursday. But when you set up two-step verification, you register one or more trusted devices, and of course a trusted device is a device you control that can receive four-digit verification code using either SMS or Find My iPhone. You're then required to provide at least one SMS-capable phone number. Then at any time you sign in to manage your Apple ID at My Apple ID, sign in to iCloud or make an iTunes, iBooks, or App Store purchase from a new device, you will need to verify your identity by entering both your password and a four-digit verification code. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's actually a good move forward. Also, um, another kind of uh, related topic when it, you know, when we're talking about Apple here, um, the iOS 8 is out. So um, I believe it's a 967 megabyte download. So wow. you want to do that when you're in Wi-Fi um, when you get the chance. Last night I tried to update my device and it said 36 hours. Um, <laughs> it error, it errored out in the middle of the night so I wasn't actually able to update my phone but um, I have an iPhone 6 Plus on order which is pretty exciting. Can't wait for that to come in but um, just a shout out to all of you Apple peeps. Um, be sure to up, update your device. I was looking through the notes on the update and we actually had some really cool features that are going to be added in iOS 8 that um, I think are going to be key. Uh, it's one of those things where when people think Apple, it's like, okay, uh, a small thing that people think should have been integrated into the iOS uh, a while ago 
is not really a big thing for you know individuals using the Apple devices or like if you're on an Android platform or something mm -hmm. of that nature. So in this particular case, I was paging through and a lot of a lot of cool things are coming to the iPhone. I know they're integrating podcasts. So here's a shameless plug. If you're listening to this through our website, www.infosexsync.com slash podcast posts, or through the RSS feed, infosexsync.com slash podcasts, please search us on iTunes. So now if you have an iOS 8 phone, it's integrated into the iOS. It's not, um, I believe it's uh, a little bit less painful than going through the application and some other things. So look us up on iTunes, subscribe, hit that subscribe button. And every week we will be, uh, you know, just an update in your podcast that you can listen to while you're going to work or whatever the case is. So um, just a shout out there, two things, upgrade to iOS 8 and subscribe. That sounds exciting. So is there anything else uh, related to that two-factor? I mean, obviously there's a number of things that have to go into place with the two-factor authentication. You have to make sure that you have to employ that you know, ideology that those different factors, yeah, you know, they're kind of separate entities, two-factor authentication, but, you know, if I'm an attacker, what am I going to look for? I'm going to look for the email that you registered with, and I'm going to try to reset that one, either, you know, that password that you set, that master password, or whatever the case is, so, you know, it, all it takes is one card, then the house of cards falls, right? So, let's make sure that we're employing that you know, uh, password complexity requirement when creating the master password for this. And uh, be sure to, you know, just, just use good common sense when creating this and thinking of from an attacker standpoint what they're going to do. Yeah, make sure you um, make your password long too. Don't go with the, uh, what, six, eight, you know, make it longer. Make it at least 10 or 12. Absolutely. Hey, hey Vic, you want to say something on that? Yeah, guys. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. So, you know, we all register our usernames and passwords on websites, and they do have two-factor authentication and whatnot, but um, a lot of times we use the same passwords, and we also use the same um, types of frequently asked questions. So That's true. What, what's to say that a website isn't, uh, tracking those passwords and then they can easily use it for others and I, and I know it's really easy to say to use different passwords and whatnot for every single site but you know we're all kind of guilty of that I'm sure that uh, we're using the same passwords for these sites what, what are you guys thoughts on that <laughs> so actually Vic um, I used to do that but I've been changing my ways I actually went to Office Depot and actually bought a password book. It's physically a book here, and uh, Matt, you can see it on Google uh, Hangout here. I'm actually showing Hold Matt. Hold let, let me bring it up. Oh, I see. It has a lock on it and everything. Yeah, it's, it's called a password journal, and I got so tired of using the same passwords, and um, I have a ton of accounts I have to remember, from electric account to insurance to um, business to um, Mac and uh, everything, you know, uh, magazine subscriptions. It just gets difficult to remember. And that's when people start using the same thing over and over and over. So I bought this. It's got different passwords, and it's something I have to hold on to. So now, it's, it's basically something I have to hold on to. 
Now let's let's uh, kind of err on the side of caution here. So that's one thing that you've employed to maintain and manage all of your passwords. I mean, some people would argue that it's insecure just because of the main fact that if you don't maintain physical control of that book, absolutely right, in the open, and somebody steals the book, now they have the keys to the city. So right, for our listeners that are sitting in the car right now, going, "That's a stupid idea," blah blah blah. At the same time, if you look at a password safe that's online, right, and you're using a password safe, all I have to do is, I don't care if you have two factors at the front end of that, we've gone over some uh, GSM interdiction methods, we've gone over some, uh, you know, some methods that are employed by attackers to sniff email traffic, things like that. So it would be very easy for me as an attacker to enumerate what you're going to use to update these things, and then, you know, just sniff that. So when you're trying to do that two-factor, you know, whoever gets there first wins. So it doesn't matter if it's a physical book or if it's a KeyPass database online. It's, it's really treated the same way. Arguably, one has more security, and when I say security, I have air quotes going, more security <laughs> than the other. But, you know, if you maintain access or, you know, or sorry, if you maintain control, and you restrict the level of access that other people have to that physical book, well, you know what? That's actually you know not a bad solution. Now you have everything in one place, and you don't have to constantly remember things. Um, because let's face it, it's even unsafe to use password generators online. It's one of those things where, all right, I want to generate a very complex password. What's the first thing I'm going to do, right? Uh, general user typically goes online and says, you know what, I'm going to try to generate a random password. Do you realize that you're going online generating that random password? All it takes now is for an attacker to sell on the back end of that, sniff those passwords that are generated, and you're making somebody else's password database or uh, uh, keyword file when trying to do a brute force or something like that. You're just Especially if you're sitting in, in Starbucks like uh, Matt does, and um, you know he's sitting there with his 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 pay thing through his uh his iphone you know <laughs> yeah so that's that's another thing people, i mean when, uh, when i mentioned yeah when i mentioned that i mean i have an app on my phone that i've re i have done that for convenience there's a there's a paradigm here the paradigm is it's kind of a teeter-totter effect you have security and convenience you can't have more security and then more convenience it just you know, it, it, they don't go hand in hand. If you have more convenience with single sign-on and things like that, typically that's less security. So in this case, I've decided that when I go to Starbucks and I decide to pay for something that my Starbucks card, right, I have separated out from, you know, it's not connected to a debit or anything that's going to affect me financially, so I'm okay with that. However, would I put my debit card on my, on my cell phone in an application that I could use to easily pay for things? Probably not. Um, that would be, that would take a lot of uh, a lot of courage on my end, and you know, being a security professional, I don't want to expose myself or have that, you know, liability out there because now if you steal my phone, okay, yeah, you can go to Starbucks and Home Depot, and you know, maybe get some stuff on there, but you know, it, it, that's pretty much you know the extent of it. You're absolutely correct, Matt, and I will have you know that I have 100 percent positive control of this book at all times so this this never leaves my side just uh so you know there absolutely so uh 
Nick, are you a big uh, Starbucks fan? Not as big as Matt is, but I enjoy a um, minty uh, triple white mocha every now and then, or a, a grande. So you you raise a good point, and whip, I think whip. I know where you're going with this. <laughs> so I I do like Starbucks. I'll admit that. I mean, it's a great establishment. Not only can you get things done um, by using the Wi-Fi, which is a, a, a very secure method to use the internet, right? But you can sip lattes, have fun, people, it, dude, it's all in one place, right? The ambiance is great as well. So I am a fan of Starbucks. I love Starbucks. But this raises a good point. I mean, we're not going to go on a, a ramble about Starbucks, but... I think that we should start doing um, a little bit something a little bit different. I think we should start introducing tech segments. So within the next three seg the the next three shows, I like I would like to have a tech segment for uh, like for example, packet sipping. Right? I'm gonna call it packet <laughs> sipping. So what we're gonna do is wireless exploitation, not at Starbucks, but we're going to kind of look at okay wireless exploitation things that we can look at from that standpoint with WPA2 versus WEP, WPA, what are the insecurities, where each of those um, kind of uh, you know falter and why they aren't widely adopted. So we're going to look at those things and uh, you know this was a great segue, thank you Vic, um, into that. So, uh, so be on the lookout, our listeners, or be on the listen out I guess, and uh, kind of listen for us to um, to have some different segments and, and provide more technical insight. So, so hold on a second, Matt. Why don't we have um, a session at one of the local Starbucks here? That'd be awesome. That would be pretty awesome. You know, like, a, what do they call it, a crypto party? So a crypto oh, yeah. party, yeah, where they have people adopt um, different uh, uh, encryption methods and things like that in a uh, flash mob fashion. So they teach people on, okay, this is an encrypted file system. This is why you should use that. These are PGP keys. These are why you should use them in email, right? This we is. We get some people to show up at, at Starbucks and uh, be on the podcast with us. And I'll be sipping a what is it, pumpkin spice latte? You already know. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there was another story I wanted to get into this week. We have a few stories for you listeners out there. So um, the story that I want to get into is Comcast with declaring war on tour. So Comcast, as you know, is an ISP, and uh, you know, uh, deep.web.com uh, put out a report that um, says basically Comcast agents have contacted customers using Tor and instructed them to stop using the browser or risk termination of service. A Comcast agent named blank allegedly called Tor an illegal service. The Comcast agents told his customer that such activity is against usage policies. So um, the Comcast agent then repeatedly asked the customer to tell him what sites he was accessing on the Tor browser, and the customer refused to answer. The next day, the customer called Comcast and spoke to another agent named blank. Uh, these will all be up in the show notes, by the way, so we'll have a link to deep.web if you want to read this in more in depth. But either way, I am protecting the identities to protect the identities of the innocent. So um, anyways... The next day, he received a phone call and from another agent and then said, users who try to use anonymity or cover themselves up on the internet are usually doing things that aren't so to speak legal. We have the right to terminate, fine, or suspend your account at any time due to you violating the rules. Wow. That's Do you amazing. have any other questions? Thank you for <laughs> co uh, contacting Comcast. 
have a Comcastic day. So the <laughs> yeah, the question is, <laughs> yeah. So the next thing is the next question I have is how did Comcast know its customers were using Tor in the first place? Mm. And um, because Tor browsers provides uh, online uh, anonymity to its users, this means that Comcast is monitoring the online activities of all its users and checking if they are following the acceptable use policy. So the Comcast has previously been listed by the Tor project as a bad ISP, and the users of the Tor project listed um, Comcast as a bad I ISP that is not friendly to Tor, and um, it cited the acceptable use policy, or Tor cited the acceptable use policy for, for Comcast, and it says um, for its residential customers, it says it's that as a residential customer, you are not allowed to use servers or proxy under technical restrictions. So um, the exact verbiage is, you are not allowed to use or run dedicated standalone equipment or servers from the premises that provide network content or any other service services to anyone outside your premises local area network, which they're kind of calling that the premises LAN. And then it says it's also commonly referred to as public services or servers. Examples of prohibited equipment uh, and servers include, but are not limited to, email, web hosting, file sharing, and proxy services and servers. So um, they deep dot web did call Comcast and kind of ask them about this. And Comcast said, we respect customer privacy and security and would only investigate the specifics of a customer's account with a valid court order. And if we're asked by a court to provide a customer to provide customer information, uh, then they ask for a reasonable amount of time to notify the customer so they can decide if they would like to hire a lawyer. And if they do, then they turn the case over to them and they proceed with the judge directly and they step away. However, the statement uh, appears to be at odds with Comcast's treatment of, um, let's see, Ross Ulbricht, alleged dead pirates, or alleged de dread pirate Roberts. So Comcast previously, corrob previously corroborated with the FBI by providing information on alleged Silk Road mastermind, Ross Ulbricht's internet usage, and Ulbricht, his uh, legal defense was that he, you know, they didn't have a warrant to perform this. So this is very interesting because, you know, uh, we, we remain, like me, Vic, and Nick here on the show are vendor agnostic. I don't care if it's Comcast, Verizon, whoever, right? I don't care who the ISP is. What I care about is the fact that, you know, these users are using Tor, which some people just like to use a browser and have their privacy, right? We have a right to privacy. Um, yeah, that's I, understood. I personally don't use Tor, um, but, you know, some people, especially, um, you know, individuals that want their privacy like to use things like this. Or so, people in other countries that are being banned because of um, political reasons. There's there's a whole gamut of things that yeah. would you know that would prompt a user to use these services. So I mean, at the same time, um, while I'm empathetic to that, I'm looking at the ISP like, okay, um, why are you looking through these logs or looking at the network netflow like the network traffic that's occurring? And saying, all right, this user is using Tor, is using X, Y, and Z, so therefore we are going to uh, kind of terminate service for that individual, and you know, or allege that they're doing something illegal or nefarious. Right. I mm -hmm. think that there has to be proof behind that. Now, Comcast did officially come on 
and say, look, if it's the FBI or if a company is trying to open a case, remember the DMCA, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So that basically says, you know, if something's copyrighted and it's out there, such as music, right, because there were a lot of services out there that allowed you to download music for free, right? Download, you know, you would have a seed type of um, topology and then, you know, you'd be able Napster and LimeWire and Kazaa and all these things, right? And they started, the ISP started cracking down on the users saying, you know, that that's not legal. So therefore, the record company is subpoenaing the NetFlow or the network traffic to see exactly what you were doing and were alleging that you were either downloading or distributing. And a lot of people got smacked with that. And, you know, I can understand from that standpoint, you know, you're downloading music. Go out and buy music. It's 99 cents on iTunes or wherever you go. Go out and buy the music, support the artist. Otherwise, that artist, you're obviously downloading music. You're interested in what's going on. You are a supporter of that artist. The artist is no longer gonna be able to produce music. So I can understand that. Um, but it's a totally different methodology and mentality when you go into saying that somebody using a Tor browser is you know, not legal per se. So, so Matt, um, Jeff Baumgartner um, from Multi-Channel News, he reported a Comcast spokesman um, stating that the story is wildly inaccurate and that, quote, we have no policy against the use of Tor, end quote. Um, noting that the anecdotal information in the story is not consistent with Comcast's messaging from agents and its security assurance team. However, Comcast, which said in its own internal investigation, could not turn evidence showing exchanges between its reps and customers, as described in the deep uh, web story, or find a member of its security assurance team, also shot down assertions in the story that the operator would ask customers for information about the websites they had visited. But while Comcast, like all ISPs, have acceptable use policies, the company said it does not monitor specific usage or the software they have installed on their machines. So I guess we're, we'll just see. We'll just see where this goes. Yeah, we, we kind of have to see where it goes. But, you know, like I said, this is something that, you know, we're here to report the news. Um, whether or not, you know, Deep.Web is right, Comcast is right, we're going to present it to you, the user, because it is security news. But that is very interesting how now Comcast has come online as the ISP and said, well, we have no recollection of that, number one. Number two, you know, I think that, it, hey, you know what? Maybe somebody was playing a social engineering game here. Who knows, right? Um, it, maybe they were getting phone calls from people that weren't, you know, representatives of the ISP. Who, we'll never know that. But at the same time, we have to see that that decision was backed out and it was like, all right, we have to actually put our thinking caps on here and act like, like you know, an ISP and say, look, you're using the service, we have an acceptable use policy, but to be honest with you, how many people read through the acceptable use policy? You know, we do because we're security professionals. Not we like looking through. just click on it. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, okay, click, what, what else, you know, I need to get on the internet. So... That's what I'm saying. You know, that's why exactly. I only use the internet at Starbucks or, you know, no, I'm kidding. I'm kind of going, going off. But, <laughs> you know, you have an ISP there, right? So you have to make sure you look at the acceptable use po uh, policy that's, that you're prompted to when you click the OK button. So folks out there, be sure that, you know, you're reading those acceptable use policies and knowing what you're agreeing to. So 
do we have what what other stories do you have nick Yes, actually, guys, um, I have a story that comes to us from Ben Woods with TNW about WikiLeaks. So Mr. Julian Assange, you know, always doing stuff, even though he's in that Ecuadorian embassy and not uh, moving. So earlier this week, WikiLeaks released FinFisher, which is a weaponized malware to help people build defenses. So WikiLeaks released it. Um, it's uh, weaponized malware and supposedly used by various governments around the world to snoop on individuals. So what exactly, Fisher, what exactly does FinFisher do? So it's marketed as surveillance software but propagates and gains access to victim systems using common malware techniques as well as compromising desktop computers. Um, they also use it to spy on mobile comms from Android, iOS, and BlackBerry devices as well. That's really weird. That's not good. So, so did they did they say anything else about it? I mean, this is kind of like it's a it's a little interesting that it it popped up that you know, they they released it and they have it out there. So, can you install this thing? Can you run it or it, what is it? What did they report well, on in the in the Julian uh, released something. Report? He said FinFisher continues to operate brazenly from Germany selling weaponized surveillance malware to some of the most abusive regimes in the world. The Merkel government pretends to be concerned about privacy, but its actions speak otherwise. Um, that was him being quoted. Releasing that's, the software is all part of the organization's push to shed light on global surveillance. Although making the software freely available to anyone around the world at the click of a button does present risks of its own, as noted in the release, the ultimate aim is to help people build tools to protect against the software and that helped track down its command and control center. That's what Assange says. So, hmm. Assange says, hey, here's this software. Click on it, and then I will help protect you from the evil regimes of the world. What do you think? So, you Vic. <laughs> yeah, so, number one, don't click on it. Um, number two, Vic, uh, are you going to now switch from Android to iOS, or what's going on? Now nothing's safe. Well... Let's see. I was on the website the other day looking at a iPhone 6 Plus. Uh, I didn't pull the trigger on it because it said uh, October 28th delivery date, so I figured uh, I had some time. That was with the 128 gig memory. But uh, I'm still kind of on the fence. Um, I'm sure You're waiting when... for the bugs to be worked out, Vic? Well, you know, that's another, you bring up a good point. With the new phone comes new vulnerabilities, right? They, I'm sure it has new technologies with this uh, iPhone, correct? Well, that's yeah. all the people waiting in line. They're the ones uh, waiting to get it and do well, research. Well, they're what we call beta testers, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was actually, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in getting that. So uh, I guess I'll be a beta tester. That's, that's pretty... That's one step up, I guess, from from being a was it alpha, beta, and then it goes into production. So that that's good. I'll buy it. All right. So the next story of the week here is um, brought to us by CSO Online. So in this particular report, they say that many Android devices are vulnerable to session hijacking through the default browser that comes within um, within Android. So wow, the an open source platform is vulnerable. vulnerable. Hmm. Yeah, kind of like, uh, you know, you can't say 
starts with an H. Heart. Yeah, we can't we can't say that. The GNU TLS and OpenSSL vulnerabilities. Um, yeah, we we can't mention that. That's one thing. We try not to use that buzz term here on the show. You know what? I'll drop it just for the <laughs> listeners so you know for future. Heartbleed. We don't want to say that. So, bam. bam, there we go. So, the default browser in Android versions older than 4.4 has a vulnerability that allows malicious websites to bypass a critical security mechanism and take control of a user's authenticated sessions on other sites. So, whatever you have open in tabs or um, authenticated sessions that are in the cache. So, so Matt, this sounds like I think it sounds like a cross-scripting... Yeah, so um, the issue is a universal cross-site scripting flaw that stems from how the browser handles JavaScript strings preceded by a null byte character. So when encountering such a string, the browser fails to enforce the same origin policy, which is a security control that prevents scripts running in the context of one site from interacting with the content of another website. So think of it like a container. So um, let's see, Todd... Beardsley, the technical lead for um, Metasploit Framework, said uh, what this means is any arbitrary website, say one controlled by a spammer or a spy, can peek into the context of any other web page. He says, imagine if you went to an attacker's site while you had your webmail open in another window. The attacker could scrape your email data and see what your browser sees. Worse, he could snag a copy of your session cookie and hijack your session completely and read and write webmail on your behalf. So that that's one of those things that's pretty scary so the security flaw was discovered by an independent security researcher uh, Rafi Blaylock he published a proof of concept on his blog on August 31st however the bugs disclosure remained largely unnoticed until the Metasploit team developed a module that could be used to steal the auth cookie from users who open a malicious page um, research and testing is still ongoing to plumb the depth of this issue Beardsley said We'd like to pin down exactly when the bug was fixed and to determine just how widespread this vector really is. After all, pre-4.4 builds of Android account for about 75% of the total Android ecosystem today. Users who believe they might be affected are advised to install one of the other browsers available for Android, such as Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Dolphin Browser, or Opera, which is not affected by this issue. Um, So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, um, and what's even more interesting is that somebody put out the vulnerability, then you know Metasploit picked it up and actually made um, made a module that could take advantage of it, and you know that's kind of scary because Metasploit framework is open source. You can install it. You can start going wild on the network now. If you have Android pre-4.4 Android devices on the network that are using, you know, the factory um, web browser, guess what? You're you're sending those, um, those cross-site scripting commands on the network, and you just have to be mindful of what devices are on the network and how vulnerable they are. So, Nick, do you have another story for us? Yeah, speaking of how vulnerable things are, um, a lot of people were talking about J.P. Morgan, and I think we've mentioned it before, and and being breached. Um, this next story comes to it from my boy uh, Edward Kovacs uh, with Security Week, um, and it's regarding J.P. Morgan sharing information on the recent cyber attack. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase has confirmed that systems were breached this summer, but investigators say there's no evidence that the attackers had gained access to highly sensitive information. 
People familiar with the investigation have told the New York Times that the hackers penetrated roughly 90 of the company's servers between June How many? And 90, 90. Wow, that's pretty serious. Wow. And that was between June and late July when the breach was detected. And how long how long did the breach go on for? So roughly the breach went on for about a month and a half from June um, up until late July, and then it was detected. Um, the attackers reportedly gained access to the details of one million customers and information on installed software after obtaining high-level admin privileges. However, an unnamed, an unnamed individual close to the matter said only names, addresses, and phone numbers have been compromised. So it kind of was like the target breach and, and that the attackers gained domain admin uh, level of access through a user privileged user account and then started spreading um, that malware and you know uh, setting up the stage attack with the exfiltration of data based upon that um, that privileged account that they accessed. Yeah, that's true, Matt. And it, it, it's you know what's curious is um, they were able to do that, but they didn't get any other information. So maybe um, J.P. Morgan's um, uh, setup works. Very good point. I mean, the thing is, it has to be uh, defense in depth. You have to look at what the attack surface is, what the attackers are going to hit, and how we can secure all of those all of those different components. So, and there appears to be no evidence that social security numbers, financial information, or proprietary software have been obtained, Matt. So, I believe that their defense in depth helped. Um, help do that. So in an update posted on its website, JP Morgan admitted uncovering a cyber attack but reassured customers that they are not liable for any unauthorized transactions on their accounts. The company has also noted that it hasn't seen any unusual fraud activity re related to the breach, which is good. Um, the investigation is still ongoing. Um, initial reports point a finger at cyber criminals believed to be from Russian or Eastern Europe. Investigators also believe a foreign government might have played a role in the operation. At least four other financial institutions are said to have been hit in the same attack. Well, Nick, However, I had a question. Sure. So, you know, we hear about these security breaches with a lot of these big financial companies and, you know, across the community. And so, you know, they go back and they do the forensics, the investigations, and then they make a report, but, you know, there's also, you know, are there any standards that we know of in how they report that, or they, do they have to report everything? I mean, how do we know that they didn't take social security numbers or, uh, you know, personal information? So is there, is there any law governing the response? So part of the response is the transparency. So if a breach occurs... You know, as a company, you have to be able to say, this is what's directly affected by the breach. Um, here's what we're providing to our customers in order to ensure that, you know, the risk that's incurred by the breach and the side effects of the breach are not going to affect you. I've, are there any laws governing that right now? I know PCI DSS and Sarbanes-Oxley kind of lays out um, with payment card information and financial data, but... Is there any laws governing the uh, response to a particular event? I don't believe there's any um, 
the governing law that states that uh, a statement has to uh, say certain things, divulge certain information. Um, it's due diligence of the company. So if they want to keep their customers, they want to keep their customers happy, then they need to keep their customers safe and reassure them that their information is safe. So we have, um, I mean, there are certain NIST special publications that are out there. I believe, uh, you know, they have a computer security incident handling guide, uh, SP 800-61 Rev 2. That, you know, that's recommendations from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They're putting out these guidelines that can be adopted. Um, this one was actually put out in April of 2012, and, you know, it, it promotes um, some of the some of the different components that, that can um, occur during events and incidents, the need for incident response, policy elements, plan elements. So we have a, um, we have a, not a rough draft, this is something that's actually being used um, within FISMA and all of the associated um, NIST uh, applications within the federal government, but at the same time, can that be adopted by private industry, more specifically by the financial industry and it seems like the commercial industry needs it as well I mean we've seen a lot of breaches occur and it just seems like it's they're basically saying this is the lesson learned other companies did it wrong they lost customers because of X Y and Z and this is how we can do it better so Vic do you want to uh, talk on this point so another thought the persons that are performing the investigation and and understanding what happened during the breach what's their level of expertise I mean we could hire some folks that uh, may not be as savvy as as others and get uh, a different report so we have the 8570 requirement that kind of governs um, if you're in a CNDSP role if you're a you know uh, IAM right uh, information assurance manager right IAT information assurance technician you know, you have all of those associated um, certifications that are accepted in each of those positions. However, you raise a good point. If you're conducting the incident response, for example, and I'm going to make a relation here, with my car. If I have a mechanic work on my car, I want them to be ASE certified, right? That's a given. So if anything happens to the vehicle, I know that they were certified in some way, shape, or form to perform those duties, and, you know, it, it gives me a... a uh, level of assurance knowing that. I think that the incident response, uh, any computer forensics, if you're testifying in the court of law, if you're actually collecting evidence um, from a particular incident, if you're recognizing the indica indicators of compromise within the uh, enterprise environment, you have to possess the certifications that can, um, that can basically say, look, these are certifications that I possess, and I am able to perform in this capacity for the organization, and in the court of law, this will hold up. So if they ask on the back end, what made this individual certified, or what does this individual possess that makes them different from the rest, um, for them to perform um, this duty in, in the case of computer forensics, how do they maintain that chain of custody, right? How are they pulling that forensics data? How are they storing that forensics data? And in events and incidents, when you're doing incident handling, uh, do they know the steps to uh, identify an event and incident, clean up an event and, is, an event and incident, and provide some formal reporting on the back end? Vic, do you have something else to say about it? 
Yeah, we may have to research it a little bit more, but it sounds like there really isn't a law in place. So a lot of times when I hear these breaches that make the news, I don't believe that what they're just reporting because uh, obviously I, I feel that we probably these people are getting a lot more information, personal information, than um, what's being reported. So it says that um, they actually have, this was 9-3-2014, I'm reading from the National Conference of State Legislatures, and they're saying 47 states, the District of Columbia, Guam, Puerto Rico, and Virgin, and Virgin Islands have enacted legislation requiring private or govern, government entities to notify individuals of security breaches of information involving personally identifiable information. It says, Security breach laws typically have provisions regarding who must comply to the law, definitions of personal identifiable information, and what constitute a breach, so unauthorized acquisition or exfiltration of data. Requirements for the notice, timing and method of notice, and, exempt and exemptions for encrypted information. So if encrypted information was exfiltrated from that organization, right? they may not be required to that. We're going to post this in the show notes. Um, again, this was on the third of September so this was very recent um, I don't see any um, any federal laws out there right now but there are uh, security breach laws data disposal laws and also the states with no security breach laws are Alabama New Mexico and South Dakota so either way this, this should make for some interesting reads and we will post it up in the show notes so Vic uh, anything else yeah so this may be a topic for another day but uh, you know when these things kind of happen uh, with the financial institutions I mean unfortunately people's credit reports get may be uh, ruined over this too so you know what's to what's the recourse for some of that too um, you know it's not easy to get something off your credit report I mean some somebody might may have sent a letter but and it may have been from one financial institution but it, it may have had an effect on something else you know uh, something didn't get paid and so you know that's a we live in some scary times because uh, credit is a livelihood for many of us and uh, you know absolutely credit is just that um, it's what creditors see when they're extending the line of credit and if the integrity of that is tarnished in any way shape or form we typically know about it when we apply for a consumer loan so um, that's one thing to definitely keep on tabs and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the individuals that have been breached and, and have been forthcoming in information have provided some means for individuals to have credit report monitoring or credit monitoring and things like that. So that that's definitely a very good step forward. So Nick, um, were the four other financial institutions related? Were they hit by the same thing? or? Um, at this point, it's unclear um, if they are related, but the bank's corporate challenge website was also breached on August 7th. The company detected a cyber attack in which passwords and contact information were compromised. Um, JP Morgan had put that out in a letter to its customers. However, the website for the Corporate Challenge, which is an annual series of road foot races sponsored by JP Morgan, is operated by a third party. Dr. Mike Lloyd, the CTO of Red Seal Networks, had said, and I quote, it's noteworthy that what was reported stolen in the J.P. Morgan Chase breach have been described as blueprints. Military strategists understand the value of maps, both for defense and offense. Unfortunately, today's attackers can establish better maps of sprawling, complex, and changing corporate infrastructure than the defenders often can. He said that in an email 
um, statement. So that's big business, um, corporate infrastructure. Um, you know, they, uh, the, the attackers go in by um, doing dumpster diving, you know, social engineering attacks. Um, another thing, every defense team needs complete and up-to-date maps of the organization's equipment. This is often lacking due to internal politics. And of course, with politics, there's money, lack of tools, or inability to keep up with the rapid pace of business change. It's clear that attackers see value in being able to map out how J.P. Morgan's infrastructure works. For other organizations, this is a wake-up call. If someone already has your blueprints and you do not, then they will be able to outmaneuver you in a later incident. That's that's definitely uh, key. So, um, again, out there, we kind of address some of the transparency that organizations need to maintain. We went over the incident handling, event management, when indicators of compromise are um, officially uh, recognized. You know, as the CISO, as the CIO, as the CEO, you have to look at the face of the company, um, forward-facing to the public, and say, "Look, you know, this is what happened. Here's how we're going to take care of it, even if it's preliminary." And again, um, now states are stepping up, and there's state laws that are being made. Um, I think the next is, is a federal mandate, federal laws. So we'll have to keep a pulse on that, see what happens. So I have another story I actually want to uh, want to bring up. So. Last week we uh, reported on home and the week before on the Home Depot breach, and we had a Krebs on security report that said that uh, the variants of the Black POS malware were used in both attacks. They were very similar. Um, individuals found some similarities between the two. So at this stage, uh, a code analysis reveals that the uh, malware that was used in the attacks were not from the same family and were probably not written by the same or written by uh, the same individuals. They were written by different different people. So, a security researcher has found a researcher has found that the malware used in the Home Depot and Target breaches are unrelated and cannot be used as an indicator that the same group is behind the attacks. An analysis in the malware code revealed that no similarities in the architecture or technique that would show the uh, software is even from the same family. Uh, Josh Gruswig, or Grunswig, the principal security consultant for enterprise security company uh, Newick, said Friday. With coding, there's a lot of different ways to essentially reach the same goal. When you look at two samples, pretty much uh, every single decision was in the exact opposite when it came to approach. So uh, Grunswick's analysis contradicts the Krebs on Security report this week that the variants of the black POS malware were used in both attacks. Brian Krebs, uh, a former Washington Post reporter, writes the blog and maintains the Krebs on Security blog. Uh, late last month, the security vendor Trend Micro recorded that the or reported that the Black POS variant was being used to attack retailers such as Target, but did not say that the same malware was used against Home Depot. In a September 9th post, however, Trend Micro acknowledged that speculation suggests the Black POS variant uh, it found was used against Home Depot because the malware discovered in the retailer systems had very similar behavior. And um, I guess it looks like. Uh, Grunswick also said that even though the Black POS version 2 has entirely different code compared to Black POS, which compromised Target, it duplicates the data exfiltration technique by used by the Target Black POS. So, so Matt, in regards to the Home Depot, I have good news. What's that? So today, probably about two hours ago now, since uh, we uh, record this on Thursday, 
they sent out an email to all their customers regarding the payment breach, and it says, on September 8th, we confirmed that our payment data systems were breached, which could potentially impact customers who use the payment card at our U.S. and Canadian stores in 2014 from April to September. Today, we're able to tell you that the malware used in the recent breach has been eliminated from our U.S. and Canadian networks. So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing, and I just want to clarify um, the last statement I made that I said was Grunswick was actually um, Trend Micro, and they also said that it's an improved clone of the original, which is why they decided to call it the Black POS version 2. And, you know, uh, Grunswick analysis focused only on, on the malware and did not draw any conclusions on whether the attackers behind the breaches were the same. But like other researchers, his instincts told him the attack were somehow related. So that just shows you, I mean, on the surface of it, they're both, it's a smash and grab, right? It's going into the network, it's grabbing information, and it's going to exfiltrate that out to somewhere as soon as possible. Um, the attackers want the data ASAP. So uh, even though they kind of, uh, or they do accomplish the same thing, they have the same outcome, you know, you ha kind of have to take it into account that it may not be the same thing, just like in code. In code, you can, you know, have a hundred lines that do one thing, but you can have five lines that accomplish the same thing and really simplify it. So in this case, um, you know, you definitely have to look beyond the surface and uh, kind of dig into the code a little bit. Definitely. So I have another story, um, last story. This one's from Edward Kovacs. This is the second story of the week we cover from him from securityweek.com. Uh, very good site uh, for blog and security news. Go, go uh, catch it on the web. So in this particular one, OWASP releases a new testing guide. So the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP, announced on Wednesday that the availability of version 4 of the OWASP testing guide is out there. So it contains several changes compared to the previous version, including new chapters and a large number of test cases. Uh, version 3 of the guide was released on September 15, 2008, and as many experts have pointed out, a new version is needed to reflect the change in the evolving cybersecurity landscape from an AppSec standpoint. So the latest version of the testing guide includes a developer's guide and the code review guide for um, static uh, code review. OWASP believes that the addition of these two flagship documentation products is important because the testing and the code review guides are designed to help developers evaluate the security controls described in the developer's guide. And let's see, another one is new chapters have been introduced for identity management testing, cryptography, error handling, and client-side testing. The number of test cases has increased from 64 to 87, and um, close to 60 people have authored and reviewed the 220-page guide under the leadership of Andrew Muller, which is the leader of the Canberra OWASP chapter, and um, the OWASP Italy founder and CEO of Minded Security, um, that is Matteo Musi. And OWASP is currently seeking aid in translating the guide into other languages. So this is a great open project. Um, be sure to check it out. We'll throw the link to Security Week um, on there. And go ahead and you can click to a link to the new testing guide from there. Check out Z Attack Proxy, some of the other products that they have. It's, it's a, a really good project. We're actually local members here of the Baltimore chapter. I'm an organizer. So um, it's really good stuff. So uh, yeah, that's all I have for stories. Hey guys, I wanted to add uh, these uh, podcasts seem to be going really well. Uh, I'd agree. Would you agree, Nick? Oh, I think they're going great. I think we're getting great feedback. Um, we have some awesome listeners. Um, just tell your friends, um, people that are interested in um, information security about us. I, I think, uh, you know, 
all those listeners out there definitely you know try to promote this for us because I think this is this is great and um, you know definitely uh, send those emails to us for the feedback absolutely so on that note feedback at infosexsync.com is the email you want to hit if you have any good bad you know great feedback guys you guys are awesome you know perfect or again if you want us to cover some different stories some different topics again we're, we're pushing forward with the information security centric and related topics but information security is very vast so we could be you know uh, tailoring it to the listeners that's what our goal is to deliver you with information so you can gain CPEs and CEUs and learn a little bit along the way um, another thing is we're also on iTunes so if you search iTunes you can subscribe to the podcast through the iTunes application or if you want to visit our site, we have an RSS feed for the website, and uh, that's where we post all of our latest podcast posts. Um, you can also find out a little bit more about our sponsors um, and a little bit about Vic, Nick, and myself. Well, I'd like to add, uh, guys, it was good uh, you guys having me on the show. And, uh, Matt, I know you like the Starbucks and all. Uh, my Starbucks is... Uh, the happy hour, so I'm going to be heading off and trying to get the little social tonight. So. Absolutely. I'm going to be doing the same thing. So uh, we're actually going to take this time to take a little bit of a break, and we're going to come back and finish the show. Well, that looks like the end of another show, so um, please visit us on the web at infosexsync.com. Provide us feedback at feedback at infosexsync.com. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Find us on iTunes. And we would like to thank our sponsors, the Van Dyke Technology Group, maximize security, optimize performance, and we would also like to thank VicTech. Please visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H.net. I'd like to give a shout out to Don Small's CEH class in Virginia Beach that's supposed to be this week. Um, it was a very good class to, um, to attend and um, listen to everyone in. And um, stay tuned next week when we have some more stuff for you guys. Yeah, guys, thanks again for tuning in. And we look forward to putting out another podcast next week. Be sure to listen in. Thanks.